0: Hi, welcome to Let Me Ask You Something. My name is Mario Veen, and today we discuss the wonderful article The Life Cycle of a Clinical Cadaver, a Practice-Based Ethnography, written by Anna McLeod, Victoria Long, Paula Cameron, George Kovacs, Molly Fredin, Lucy Patrick Olga Kitz, and Jonathan Tummans. This paper is the 10th installment of the series on Philosophy in Medical Education, in the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. And we have some exciting news because our book is in production. It's a book that will contain all of the installments in the series and also a discussion chapter that I wrote with Anna Gianciolo in which we try to tie everything together. So that's coming out in August and I will let you know once it's out. So I'm here with Anna McLeod, Victoria Long and my co-host Gabriel Finn. And Anna McLeod is Professor and Director of Education Research in the Faculty of Medicine at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. She is also the Unit Head for Dalhousie's Research in Medicine program. Victoria Long is a PhD student and Research Associate in the Department of Continuing Professional Development at Dalhousie University. And I asked Professor Gabrielle Finn to do the interview. And Gabrielle is the vice dean for Teaching Learning and students for the Faculty of Biology, Medicine and Health. She is Professor of Medical Education in the School of Medical Sciences. And I also co-edited a book with Gabrielle and Megan Brown, which is called Applied Philosophy for Health Professions Education. We're with a transatlantic crowd here. Gabs from the, Gabrielle Finn from the UK, and Victoria Long and Anna McLeod from Canada. Yeah. So, Victoria, why don't we start with you? Uh, can you say a little bit about yourself and what is the paper about in a nutshell?
1: Sure. Uh, so, my name is Victoria Long, like you said. Um, I started working for um, Anna a few years ago, um, and this was the first project um, that I was signed on. So, I work as a research associate at Dalhousie University. And what really interested me in this paper specifically was really drawing out um the entire life cycle. So often, we oftentimes we will, um, when we do research on cadavers, it'll be, you know, how do people work on cadavers or specifically what is the use of this cadaver or what's the effectiveness of this cadaver, but really what drew me to this project and probably you as well, Anna was, was the fact that we could really follow the cadaver, um, from, from even speaking to the donors before it, really became a a, a cadaver to when um, it is finally returned to the ground. So that's really what drew me to this project specifically.
0: Anna, this is a topic I don't know anything about, and it's just so fascinating. But can you just explain a little bit what the paper is about? Because it is about working with cadavers, but how did you approach that? And maybe you can introduce yourself as well.
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you. I'm Anna McLeod. I'm a, a social scientist and a professor at Dalhousie Medical School. And like you, I knew absolutely nothing about this work uh, before we before we started. I had never, other than at a, you know a, a funeral, I'd never actually seen a cadaver before we started this work. So it was really a fascinating piece of project for someone like me, a social scientist. Um, to take on. And to be honest with you, this was not one of those projects that I I conceptualized on my own necessarily. I was on vacation with my family and I got an email from the dean of our medical school saying, Anna, I would like to speak with you about an opportunity. And I thought, I wasn't sure, you know, is is this a good opportunity or Or not, but it was a little nerve-wracking. But when I went in to to sit and chat with him, he highlighted the fact that we had this really interesting program, the clinical cadaver program that we describe in the paper. And he said, you know, people, we hear anecdotally all the time that people find that such an incredibly valuable resource that we have these, these cadavers that are preserved in such a way that they actually feel and behave to some degree like an anesthetized patient. Um, so we keep hearing that it's really powerful and, you know, but it, it's a, it's a program. It takes resources. It takes time and money and energy to run. And we, you know, we're interested in learning more about whether it's viable. And I don't know, maybe he imagined that we would do some sort of comparative study between traditionally preserved cadavers and these clinical cadavers or that sort of thing. But we're, you know, Victoria and I were, and, and lots of our team members we're we're very much in the kind of, social science-y space, where theoretically oriented work, that sort of thing. So the the work that we came up with was probably really different than what they had initially imagined we might do. Anyway, through that conversation, um, we found ourselves invited into these spaces, what we've referred to as the the underworld of medical education in some ways, that we, we probably would not have had access to otherwise it it's really interesting to think about that, the fact that there's there are these people, these projects, this work that happens that is very much, you know, I don't want to say hidden uh, from the rest of the medical school community, but it certainly happens offstage. Um, so it was a real privilege to find ourselves meeting these people, entering their workspaces, learning about what they do, and, and actually getting to, to be there. To not only to observe it but to also experience it uh, so it, it was a a really wonderful project i have to say I, I can't think of another bit of work that i've done lately that has really impacted me in the same way that this work has
0: mm, yeah i'm really excited to to talk about this as well it's such a fascinating topic and uh, Of course, everything to do with death and mortality uh, is is, uh, also very philosophically interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, but one of the things I love about doing this podcast is that I get to invite actual experts (laughs) to do most of the interview. And um, GAPS, uh, yeah, we know each other from another book about uh, philosophy that we uh, co-edited together, together with Megan Brown you are much more knowledgeable about this topic. And could you maybe introduce yourself and and say how you connect to this paper?
3: Absolutely. So I'm Gabrielle Finn. I'm a professor of medical education and vice dean for the faculty of biology, medicine and health at the University of Manchester. I started life as an anatomist. I call myself a closet anatomist these days. So my anatomy is limited to um, doing workshops and things for the public on trying to bring surface anatomy and living anatomy back into um, public consumption and anatomy education, I guess. Um, I do a lot of research on anatomy pedagogy, so I I loved this paper and found it extremely interesting. And there is so much just from your brief introductions that I already want to unpack. So I think this is going to be an exciting conversation.
0: Yeah, go ahead and unpack.
3: (laughs) Well, where to to start? I think actually, I mean, you gave us some great background on how the study came about um, from your dean. And I was really struck by the fact that you... Um, you mentioned this was the first time you'd seen a cadaver, Anna. I don't know about um, Victoria, so maybe even just explain to people what that was like, as a as a person. You know, when you're faced with your own mortality, or as and as a researcher,
1: I actually have a medical background, so I went to medical school and I saw a cadaver um, as a medical student. But I will say that the cadavers that we work with, we have the privilege of working with um, at Dalhousie, um, are it's very incomparable, the the amount of realism. Um, they really, when you walk into the room, they really look like sleeping patients um, versus um, the traditional uh, cadavers that we work with. Um, they don't, you, it's a lot easier to disconnect from the fact that it was a person um, because of how different it looks. But I will say the first time I saw a cadaver at Dalhousie, um, we call them the clinical grade cadavers, Um, it was definitely shocking. And um, also, I remember specifically when I walked into the room where there were multiple cadavers, um, that was particularly shocking as well. It wasn't just face-to-face with a cadaver, but with a room full of cadavers. That um, is particularly striking as well. Um, But there's definitely something surreal about it, and I hope that's something we captured in the paper as well, where um, there's something so surreal about encountering this this being that is somewhere between life and death um, and grappling with your own mortality through that. And normally um, we work with living patients and and in medical school, we work with books and and pictures, but we don't have these moments where we're really facing death um, right in front of us. So that was um, for me anyways, that was definitely um, a unique experience.
2: It, it was one of those moments I had to sort of psych myself up for it the moment I knew I was going in. So my first encounter was at um, a continuing professional development seminar that was being run um, using the, the cadavers. It was an airway management course and people come to take the course uh, at Dalhousie Medical School. And it's run by our, our colleague and our partner in this research, Dr. George Kovacs. And, yeah, uh, you know, so and and George is a wonderful guy, such a supporter of our work, appreciates our our social science, ethnographic orientation so much and and facilitated so much of this work. It was a great collaboration. But, you know, he's an emergency doctor and is used to working like fast, under pressure, that sort of thing. And so I remember showing up that morning and him sort of saying, "Okay, go go, come on in, come on into the room and trying to be like, okay, I'm, I'm cool with this. I'm okay with this, I'll be fine. Um, and, and I, you know, you are fine in the moment, but it certainly triggered a lot of thinking for me in a way that no other research project that I've done has. And so, you know, I, I think I've, I'm, I know I've told this story. It feels like I tell the story all the time, but I think it really, um, captures the reaction to it i i kept you know, I, I went home and not too long afterwards i cut off all my hair <laughs> I, I used to have all kinds of really long hair and i at the time i was thinking you know looking around the room and you can't help but think about what bodies are um when you when you're in a room of, of bodies that aren't living anymore and and what what it is at the end of our lives that our bodies do what they what what they are and so I, I found myself thinking a lot about how I wanted to spend the time that I have and what my body was all about. And I kept thinking, like, I spend a lot of time washing and drying my hair. I don't think I really want to do that anymore. And, um, you know, like those sorts, it was a very, very um, kind of visceral and personal reaction. And interestingly, like when we, when we have written about this work, it, it, for the, the paper we're discussing today and in other places, the reflexivity piece is really interesting to try to write about, and we you know we've had feedback. Like you seem to want to talk about your feelings a lot, but it was a very uh, emotional process for us. Some some of us, so you know, we have we were quite a diverse research team. Some of us, like Victoria, our MDs, have have that background and have spent some time, um, but many of us. It was it was a first. And, and so it was an interesting group of people to bring together to really think through um, what we were seeing and what we were experiencing.
3: You mentioned in, in your introduction you know, that the idea that you might compare traditional with your clinical grid Cadavers, or what you refer to in the papers as the cadaver based simulation. And I think, just in terms of grounding the conversation, it's quite interesting just to explore what that means to people who are not working in the field of anatomy. Um, You know, traditional, I would imagine you are meaning formalin, formaldehyde, fully fixed, fairly immovable cadavers. And then here we're referring with these. Clinical grade cadavers. You're talking about soft fix teal embalming, which was pioneered in Dundee in Scotland, um, and it gives that soft, more movable, and slightly more lifelike presentation of a cadaver. You can move them. There's you can separate the planes, and the tissue is just softer and more manipulatable. But I guess you know it's just to really clarify for people what what you were referring to in that space.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly the the difference. And you know, one of the things that was really interesting for us to explore is many of the the people who work in the program, who work in in the actual um, they're called I I think I'm getting this right, Victoria, cadaver technicians um, who actually work to to do the preservation work are trained um, as funeral directors and trained formally trained in in embalming and. And so it was really interesting, just by coincidence, before we took up this research project, we'd been doing a socio-material study of of simulation with looking at the tools of of simulation. So mannequins and task trainers and even simulated patients to some degree to, to think about how the materiality of those things influenced the way that people engage in simulation. And so what we saw was, you know, there was something about the mannequins, the sort of, you know, the expressions on their face or whatever that inspired a certain kind of behavior. People would be jokey or sometimes they would, you know, animate the mannequins and, and use a funny voice to fill in to fill in backstories, those sorts of things. But the, the materiality of those tools inspired a particular type of behavior in the simulation space. So I think Coming directly, really, from that work into the looking at procedural skills teaching and simulation with these clinical cadavers, as we call them, couldn't help but compare how the the behavior in the room was was quite different, um, and and we think it was. You know, our our, our theory, our, our analysis was that that had to do with the, the cadaver itself as being the, the basis of, of the simulation. And so a lot of the conversations that we had with people or the things that we would see people doing um, involved the, the cadaver technicians or working with clinicians to build a better simulator in some ways, right? Like how in, so that there, there would be conversations between physicians and and the people in the program saying, you know, in real life, a patient would do this if we, if we perform this procedure or, or whatever, is there any way that we can work with the cadaver to, to make it do that? So there was this really interesting uh, collaboration between clinicians and people who worked in the program to try and build a, a, an excellent uh simulator to some to some degree like there, and there was a lot of a lot of pride about how uh, we were contributing they were contributing to an excellent educational experience
3: i guess for me it's that word simulation that sort of doesn't maybe doesn't quite resonate with my experience in uk um anatomy education you know t- traditional cadavers are formalin fixed you know are used with for gross anatomy so for you know for teaching through dissection or prosection where the parts have already been pre-dissected for students and they're looking at things in isolation so maybe only a lower limb as opposed to an entire um cadaver and that you know the what what you're speaking about in terms of cadaver-based simulation is just seen as anatomy and procedural cpd with cadavers rather than using the word simulation and I guess it just gets, it already gets me thinking about the transitions that you've so beautifully articulated in your paper about when a cadaver is a person, becomes a resource or in this reference it's almost have become a mannequin haven't they? You know they're taking the place of a high fidelity simulator Um, and yeah that it that's a bit that kind of it really stuck with me thinking actually maybe I feel a little uneasy with that reference um but that you know that just comes from my own experience about you know when does when does a body become a thing it it
2: is complicated yeah. for sure um you know and and you, we see it in the language that people use some of this complexity um, there's I I don't necessarily know that some of the people who work in 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 the program would be comfortable with calling a cadaver uh, a simulator either and yet it is sort of what we're observing um, observing happening with them I mean there was definitely resistance to using the word tool like a teaching tool um, it's it is it's very it's very complicated I mean you see it in the the different pronouns and the different words that slip into people's language is it a he, or she, and it, they, those sorts of things. It's complicated. It
3: really is. I think you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of, I don't think in anatomy education or even science, medicine in general, our lexicon has evolved enough to To keep pace with the changes in the way that we teach, or the issues that are happening in society, Um, you know, pronouns and how a cadaver may have identified in life, for example, there's lots of assumptions that we have to make. The debate about sex and gender and things being in binary opposition, it we we haven't kept pace, and maybe because of the knit, because we're talking about death. It just stagnates all those conversations, and it makes it quite difficult to unpack.
1: I think in in the fact that calling it a simulation, a simulator, or a thing makes us uncomfortable. Um, I think on the one hand that adds to the success of Putovers as a simulator because it really shows that. Um, a lot of people at, to a certain degree will say they detach from the fact that this is a person to really be able to practice. But I think fundamentally, we all really still see it as a person and we really want to pay respect. And we still have this sense of the sanctity of the human body um, and those elements of, of the humanist that always permeated um, those, um, those interactions with it. That is actually the thing that really enhanced um, that experience and Um, Just going off of uh, some of the things you talked about, Anna, with um, the experience being very different, I can think of an example. So one of the times when I was doing an observation of the cadaver work, um, it's in the simulation suite where there's this glass um, wall and it has uh, two areas where you can practice. So in one area, there was a cadaver and people were practicing on the cadaver. And in the other area, they put a mannequin there um, for people to practice. And they were kind of going in and out. But um, I remember standing there and looking at the people in the cadaver room who were very serious, um, practicing, not really talking about anything other than the cadaver, the procedure, the anatomy. And then looking over my shoulder at the mannequin and they were all laughing and, and joking. And um, even at one point there there was this student who was sort of laughing with his colleagues in the other room and he walked into the room and as, as soon as he stepped past the glass door as his face just went, like he was smiling and the smile was completely gone because there's this recognition of, no, this is a serious um, moment. And I think, um, yeah, as we talked about that that, really characterised for us what cadaver work meant.
3: It's interesting that in your, partly in your reflexivity section, but you talk about the underworld and that really does resonate. The fact that anatomists and dissection facilities are typically underground or on the top floor of a building completely blocked out with all natural light um, obscured. And I just, you know, I guess from a philosophical perspective, and just, you know, are we not? We're perpetuating this that taboo of death again—that it's what we do is—I don't want to say immoral or wrong or should be hidden. That it's, you know, you mentioned things being secretive, that you know, that the underbelly of the of the university. So I just wondered, you know, what that was like for you, and and and, and applaud you for. You know, having so much reflexivity in your research because I think that's something we don't always see.
2: It it is striking, you know, when when you find yourself entering those spaces. That you know, it's funny that the I grew up not too far from the medical school I work in, about a four hour drive from here. In here in Canada, we talk about things in terms of hours instead of kilometers. I don't know why, but we do. <laughs> so uh, I remember coming to visit. Halifax where we live now as as a you know 13 14 year old and my uncle driving me by the medical school and saying look this is this is where the bodies are and oh wow you know it was one of those moments that that stayed with me and I, I couldn't help but think about that when I was doing this research thinking you know how how now here I here I am um entering these spaces in a different kind of capacity altogether. And what really stood out for us, I think, at least for me, was how committed and dedicated the people were who work in these programs to doing, you know, to to being excellent (laughs) at their work, truly. You know, they they were really, really committed. We talk about there being a, a discourse of excellent education that permeated all of this work. And it's it's very present uh, in in the spaces that we found ourselves in. So it was such a contrast to be in the underground, literally in the underground, where there is very little light, where there are things that I didn't know were present. You know, in in the medical school, like washing machines and a forklift, and you know those sorts of things, the physical tools that facilitate this work that. You know that I had no idea about before seeing them, and then talking with people who are are really committed to excellence in education and and to to providing the best learning experience that they can to making sure that donors' wishes are respected, um, and and so it, it's a world of contrast, um, but very much a world of of pride and of of good work, and we really wanted that to come through in in this project, because it was, I think, one of the most, really for me, one of the most striking things was was how hard people work to to give this excellent learning experience, and and not just in a traditional sort of, you know, building a good curriculum, building a good you know building a good simulator kind of way but but you know there's a recognition that some of this is emotional work that this is difficult work for people and the people that we talked to they were all in and they, they they saw it they live it every day and they really wanted to to um to do the best possible work that they could but it is it is very interesting that the physical spaces in which this work takes place and Gabs, what you mentioned about it being underground or in the top floor well, we have both of those <laughs> both of those spaces in in our buildings here on the other side of the Atlantic so I think it's it's very it must it very much translates into different spaces Been doing a, a bit of reading and one of the concepts I'm really interested in lately that's helping me make sense of a lot of things in the broad field of medical education is the idea of work um, and The sociology of work and the fact that all of this, is, there are so many different types of work that we engage in. And, and one of the fields I, I read a little bit about in, in, you know, preparing to write some of this stuff up is the idea of of dirty work. There's a whole field about people who do jobs that society in general find unpalatable, and um, you know, death work, anything in that broad realm, very much. Falls into that category. And um, we, the sort of societal aversion to death and dying and all of those things has, has very much permeated, I think, how we think and talk about this, this world.
3: Absolutely. I mean, my first academic, well, not academic, but my first job in a university while I was trying to get doctoral funding was as an anatomy aide so that was below the technician, washing, preparing bodies, and it fascinated people um everyone presu- there there the are war stories that even in general broad society seem to keep you know rolling around you know ideas that we all run around with hands and are playing pranks and it's absolutely couldn't be further from the truth that you know the the pride in looking after somebody's loved one and the dignity that's preserved and i think you did a really good job in when you talk about the transitions of the cadaver in capturing that um it it is difficult work absolutely and you know Victoria you said there's lots of coping strategies that people use in order to I guess protect themselves because you are doing something that's difficult um you know you're working with bodies in in various states um however I think it's a real honor to do that and I hope and you know I think that comes across in in what you're saying. I think I'd, I'd really like to unpack some of your methods because I think personally ethnographic stuff is is fantastic, but maybe we could just wrap up on some of the kind of, the framing of the paper and the cadaver side by just thinking about the hidden curriculum. And all of that tacit and implied messaging, you know, in the physical space, in the way that people talk or don't talk about cadavers. And the way that I feel we forget the different discourses and significance that the body has. We're quite happy to talk about cadavers in a very scientific, clinical way. And we're quite happy to acknowledge that they were a person and belonged to someone and a loved one. And, and you know, that's the final transition that you describe in your paper, but we don't talk an awful lot about the symbolic and the aesthetic and the sexual discourses of the body. I think we've hinted at that with the, you know, the different, um, the, you know, with pronouns and gender and sexuality. But it that's all still very much taboo as well, isn't it? Like, you know, when you're talking about some looking at a cadaver and talking about somebody past tense, that we forget about all of the different meanings that this person or this cadaver had
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, you know, one of the most interesting bits of information I found was when we interviewed the the cadaver technicians who had been trained as as funeral directors, and they talked about the sort of professional role strain that they had in moving from the the funeral um, realm to this medical education realm and how the work that they did was very different to, to prepare a cadaver for education as opposed to preserving or preparing it for, um, you know, for a memorial type of service. And, uh, you know, so it it, there was a lot of of emotional work that the the technicians themselves were engaged in. But I'm not sure I'm sure it's the same thing for you, Victoria, when when we find yourself in those spaces and you look around, a lot of those markers of identity and the ways that we make sense of people, living people in the world are gone uh, because of the work that has happened to prepare the body for education. And so it's really hard to tell, you know, obviously the clothing is gone, but so too are, you know, hair and and jewelry and, um, you know, it's, the bodies are just very plain. And so you can't, You can't tell, you know, was this a a rich person or a poor person, a parent, a partner, a professional, you you know, you just don't know. And in many cases, because most of our donors tend to be frail, older people, even even your initial judgment about whether this person lived as a man or a woman, all of those things are gone. And it is disorienting. Um, The tools that we use in everyday life to make sense, to sort and sift people into those categories, are not they're just not there and it you know it does it does make you realize how deeply embedded some of those processes of sorting and sifting people socially are in your everyday um, that and when the markers are gone it, it changes things um so it, it also i i you know again from a reflexivity perspective really made me pause to think about my own sort of physical being my my own my own body and, and what what matters to me, what we, what, you know, again, I, I talked about my big haircut, <laughs> but it couldn't help but uh, reflect on what bodies are um, when you see them all reduced to the very most basic form uh, laying there. It, it's It's a very strange and impactful sight. I don't know, does that, did that
3: resonate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. It's a true leveler, isn't it? We all come into the world the same and we leave the world the same. And yeah. I think that's quite profound for lots of people and perhaps different seeing cadaver compared to a loved one in that you do see them in that entirely vulnerable state that maybe you know, we, we you wouldn't encounter elsewhere. I know that I've I'd, I'd mentioned to Mario that I, I love the fact that this wasn't an empirical kind of, uh, sorry, a, po- a positivist comparison of traditional versus soft-fixed cadavers, which yeah. is best for learning. Um, I know yeah. Mario's got lots of thoughts on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking how, um, my well, my approach in medical education is interdisciplinary from the perspective that the research tools that you use have to fit kind of the object of research. So I was thinking about how you speak, how profound it is to encounter a cadaver and how much respect around that 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 also translated into the method that you're using. And sometimes with with a paper like this, I I try to imagine what if this study had been done by another uh, study. So Victoria, you talked about this student walking into a room and changing kind of the facial expression, kind of being first cheerful and laughing with the mannequin and then being face-to-face with the cadaver, something happened. So I guess you could, in a more traditional medical education research way, you could maybe formulate that in terms of attitudes towards the cadaver and you could examine how the attitudes of medical students change you know during this training or you could measure it before and bef- and, and after but instead in your paper you talk about being and you talk about ontological changes and you talked about you talk about transitions of the cadaver while the cadaver materially remains the same but still you talk about changes so Could you speak a little bit about what makes this at the level of being an ontology rather than just, let's say, students' attitudes changing towards the cadaver during their learning process?
1: I think you bring a a really important point to the conversation. I think a lot of the conversations we have been having around um, cadaver work or simulation work has been around fidelity. Um, and it's about been around physical and functional fidelity where physical is, does it resemble a human body and functional fidelity in terms of, um, does it uh, respond to manipulation in the same way as a normal human body would? And those are really our two frameworks for understanding, is this a, for uh, measuring, is this a good representation? Is this a good simulation of um, of real life? Um, but what we found in our research is that there may be something missing in that. Um, there may be something missing in the fact that this is a human body. Um, so in the ontological fidelity of the human body, because really, I, I think the advancements in technology and having these really high tech mannequins is is excellent. But as we see, the most technologically advanced mannequin we will ever produce will not reproduce um, that humanity of the cadaver, which really affected every um, simulation. And so what we're offering in this paper is maybe we need to look beyond physical and functional fidelity or, or the ways we usually see fidelity and, and draw on a philosophical perspective to understand maybe there is something to be said about another type of fidelity, which could be um, ontological fidelity or, or the idea of what this what this is.
2: I found one of the things that from a methodological perspective that really, really we needed to do was to build in lots of time to honestly to just chat, to just discuss what we had seen. Um, Because the the things that Victoria is describing, the complexity of it all, we were were sort of we're seeing it and we're living it. But it was through our kind of collective conversations with our multiple perspectives that we were able to to, to make sense of, of what those missing pieces were and where we could where we could direct our findings and our, our inquiry and our findings so that we were able to offer something that wasn't already there. Um, so you know, having, I think one of the real strengths of our project, was that we had people like Victoria with a medical background, people who were really comfortable and at ease being around the clinical cadavers. Two of our team members, uh, George Kovacs and Lucy Patrick, are emergency physicians who work in the clinical cadaver program. And then we had a whole bunch of social science people um, with backgrounds in, in education or in critical studies and those sorts of things who, um, who, and, and some with training in ethnography, when, when we all came together, we helped each other sort of see our, our assumptions and our blind spots. And, and so there was something to be said for, for having the space for conversations and having the multiple perspectives come together to, to unpack this really complex set of sites.
3: It's really tricky, particularly in the UK, to get ethnographic studies approved even even observing obviously you know you're observing real real live people but you're also observing really you know people who were alive and are now are now dead in 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 the underworld quote of the university so I just wonder you know how you landed on ethnographic observation and how you were how you were able to get that approved did you have any challenges with it as a method
2: yeah it's not the most straightforward way to collect data that's for sure (laughs) Um, and yet it's sort of, it is what I personally, what I love to do. Um, and I do think that for those of us who are sort of embedded in the educational work of a medical school, we're kind of informally doing ethnography every day. And I, I think that that's an important piece to to think about. We, we, we live and work in these places, well, we don't live there, but, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe sometimes <laughs> feels like we live there but we you know we know these places so well um that it's really it counts for something our sort of semi-insider knowledge of the way that places work um but in order to to get the um ethical approval to to do long-term observational work it's 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 tricky for sure. So in this case, we were not able to um, to take photographs or videos of a space, that sort of thing. And so we relied on really traditional you know old school notebooks we took notebooks and pens into the spaces and we took notes and we had designed sort of an ethnographic template for things to pay attention to but in reality you know what we did was we we went in and things that caught our attention we documented by field notes and then we we made sure that we took the time to unpack to discuss as as I was just saying but it's not um it wasn't efficient I guess is the way I would say it like it, it it takes it takes time and we had to work to build relationships with people we had to to meet people to gain their trust so that they would invite us into our space it's not like we can just say yeah I'm going to show up at your cadaver lab and hang out you know we had to we had to um, meet people and and be invited into those spaces describe what we wanted to do and and help them understand why we wanted to do it. Um, and, and it so it evolved over time where we were gradually invited into more spaces and connected with more people and those sorts of things. Um, so I guess there are a couple of pieces there. The ethical piece, It's it wasn't simple, but it was doable, provided that we paid attention to, to not Collecting data that we shouldn't have collected, that we didn't have permission to collect, and when there were, we had to sort of make calls about when we were when we required informed consent for observations and those sorts of things as well, and and we we did that uh, in, in as this as these situations were unfolding. So in the end, though, despite those those complexities, the the ethical complexities, and the fact that it is not um, quick work the depth and the richness and the connections that we were able to build. And and it is very much an iterative process. You know, you get to know people and and it grows from there. It did allow, I think, for a a certain degree of comfort and um, trust to be established between us and and the people who were part of the, the field that we were observing.
3: But you've talked about conversation a lot and, you know, challenging each other to think about your biases and your assumptions. You, you know, table one in your paper beautifully delineates the six stages of the life cycle of, of your clinical cadavers. And I just wonder how how that came into being with so many different viewpoints and whether you got, you know, did you, is it something that you easily reached a quote consensus, so, you know, on? For me, I'd never really thought of, that transition between a cadaver to an educational cadaver. Um, You know, the idea of a teacher or in anatomy, we talk a lot about the silent teacher. Um, That certainly matches my experience. But that transition from cadaver to educational cadaver is not something I'd ever really thought about. So I'm I'm just curious as to how that that developed and what you maybe think the take-home is for people working in this space when you've mapped out those
2: transitions. Victoria did a lot of work on this on this life cycle, if you want to talk to her sure.
1: Yeah, no, when you were talking, I was just picturing. So in our office, when all our offices were together, we had this really big poster in there and we just had post-its and we just, throughout the time we were working on it, we just move around these post-its with, we'd have the life cycle and the different body, person, um, and all this terminology, and we just work through it. So we have, um, this table isn't in the the paper, but we have, um, so all of the different names for the cadaver, and then we'd have all of the different people involved and all of the different steps, um, everything that was done to the cadaver, um, everything that's done uh, that the cadaver does to us, that sort of thing, and mapping all of those um, events, all those peoples, and all those interconnections which really became um, the the heart of the, the anal- analysis at a certain uh, degree. And I think um, when you were talking about that difference between cadaver and cadaver work, I think, uh, uh, or the educational cadaver, um, I think that came from the fact that we were looking at things in this um, as a whole and in function of the people that were involved and the steps that were involved and the things that were done to the cadaver. So those differences, were not only sort of conceptual on it and in 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 a way that was removed from the the flow of the life cycle of the cadaver, but it was it was really derived from that sense of what was happening um, throughout the life cycle. So I would say those those um, that's how the decisions were made at that at that point. Um, but I will say as well as as we say in the paper. Um, these transitions are obviously not fixed. um one, and like when a person becomes a donor, they obviously are still a person when they're a donor. and and um we're not necessarily trying to say that this is what it's now, and this is what it's now, and, and it's no longer this. And it's it's really this this flow of ideas and these this flow of, Um, conceptions of what a cadaver is and how things change over time um, rather than a fixed state at different um, periods of the life cycle
3: when you know when you look at how you've mapped it out around you know where these transitions are taking place the people the activities and the location and I think Anna mentioned this earlier the impact of physical space and that's something that I took from your paper is actually you know the impact of time and space on how we perceive a person, whether that cadaver is within a prep room or then in a simulation space, is changing the lens through which people view the same body. And that that for me was really quite impactful.
2: And I think the the concept of work comes comes in here again too, in that the, the physical space changes the work that people are doing. Um, depending on where the, the cadaver is physically located. Um, it really did change the, the interactions along the way. Um, yeah, it, it was such, a, being in those spaces again, that spaces that we didn't know existed was, was a real privilege. And I think um, we asked, ourselves one of the questions we asked ourselves along the way throughout this work was, and it, it's it was really a quite kind of it started out sort of jokey but we became very serious about it is would you donate your body then when the time came and it's interesting how depending on where we were in this life cycle our responses changed uh you know from where we're thinking about it and the only time i myself felt strongly compelled that yeah maybe i maybe i would um was during the the last stage the sort of teacher becoming a, a legacy or the loved one in the uh, interment and memorial service. You know, you find yourself in this large church uh, space where, where people come together to, uh, it's interesting too, the, the, the memorial service takes place in a church but it's it's not necessarily a religious uh, ceremony. It's just it's a big space with free parking, <laughs> so that's why that's why we have the uh, service in that particular space. But nonetheless, there is such uh, hard to describe, but a, a feeling of of gratitude, of um, honor, and I remember one particular instance where. You know, the person speaking started off by saying, you know, if if you if your family member is someone who are honoring, please stand up. Or if you're a learner who's worked with these cadavers or and before we knew it, you know, everyone in the space was sort of standing up and saying we've all been touched by the gift that your loved one offered in sharing their body with the Human Body Donation Program and with education. And it was it was just the most profound and um, Yeah great feeling of gratefulness and and so the the physical space and and the activities that people were engaged in really sort of changed the way that even we ourselves as researchers thought about what our own our own bodies and how we whether we might donate
0: i think we could continue speaking about this for hours it's such a rich and interesting topic but you have just a few minutes though and, and there's two questions i really like to ask So the first one is kind of out of self-interest because I'm involved in a project about emergency care simulation. Mm -hmm. Uh, No cadavers, but just the the only thing in common is that you're trying to prepare students for something. And there the discussion is also a lot about realism. So from your paper, I get the sense that realism or fidelity as you call it is it's not the only thing that that counts and i wonder if you could say something about what what do you mean by ontological fidelity and is that a concept that could also translate to other types of simulation in medical education
2: i think that's an it's an important concept in fact victoria and i are just bouncing a draft of a paper <laughs> about why ontological fidelity matters back and forth at the moment um and uh, you know what we—I think really at the core what we mean by ontological fidelity—and jump in anytime, Victoria—but is the idea that there's something about realness that can't be replaced. And so you know you'll see in in simulation spaces that people take the time to write backstories for you know for the mannequins, or they they give the mannequin a name. They they try to humanize it. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time and effort on that. And, and I think it's important to do that, but it it's not real <laughs> in the same way that, um, you know, we don't, you don't have to do that with a cadaver because we know there's a story there. We don't, I don't, I don't think we necessarily need to know what it is. Um, it, it just, it can't be removed. The fact that there was life that there was uh, a living person who existed in the world that sort of thing and so you know when the the, we're we're working on thinking about how ontological fidelity might be integrated into various forms of curriculum and the idea being here that uh, you know there's enough there, there are enough real stories real uh, perspectives real people in in the world that we can in fact provide that that ontological fidelity in in various forms of curriculum
0: that's a nice segue to the last question i want to ask because uh deleuze and guattari they were in in their book what is philosophy they write that philosophy is about the creation of concepts so this is one of those concepts that that you you create or that you form and Well, Deleuze is, I think, um, more and more known in research as well. But there's also often, (laughs) I would say, a question of fidelity because the work is used in different ways. And when people use the work of Deleuze, they usually use something about the rhizome. So I was really pleasantly surprised to see what is philosophy used in an actual empirical paper. How did that happen?
2: (laughs) Oh, well, you know... That happened purely by accident, I would say. In that, I, I had some time because I was on sabbatical, and it was during the pandemic. I was supposed to be in Australia, and instead, I was in my basement, <laughs> and I was—I uh, had time to walk and think. And I was on a, a, a winter walk, listening to a podcast. Listening to actually, Mary, I've heard you recommend this podcast before. The philosophize this.
0: Yeah, by Stephen West. Yeah, everybody listen to it. It's brilliant.
2: It's fantastic. Absolutely. And I had been listening to a series of them. And one day I was walking and the episode about what is philosophy (laughs) came on um and and I remember very clearly he gives the example of the the fact that humans have sort of three fundamental activities art science and philosophy um and so you know when I was thinking about it in terms of cadaver work the art piece was clear enough when we prepare we prepare bodies so that they look a certain way uh the scientific the, the acts involved with preservation and teaching clinical skills and those sorts of things but I thought we haven't really thought about the philosophical work that's happening, the concepts that are being created. So I returned back and then did some reading and Victoria and I sat in our office and listened together and worked through some of the ideas. And um, it, it just became a clear fit as a, a really strong lens to help us make sense of, of some of the ideas.
0: Gaps, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, why should people read this paper if they haven't already?
3: I think this paper, is, it's fantastic. It's so powerful in the way that you delineate a really tricky, complex, personal, but special life cycle of a cadaver. Um, I love the fact that this paper uses ethnography and it's not ramming a positivist <laughs> viewpoint down our throats. So and it's really easy to happen um, in medical education research. I think it's really important for not just at researchers but for people you know anyone who might be thinking about anatomy and death and dying just to be mindful and aware that we are so respectful of cadavers as well I think it's quite easy when we're talking about anatomy for it to become sensationalized very easily and I hope that Even if people aren't thinking about this paper from a philosophical perspective or the fantastic use of methods that they also think about, you know, the gift that the donors have given us. And and I think you've done a wonderful job in highlighting that to people. So thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much
0: thank you Thank you so much for this conversation is there is there anything you would like to add?
2: It, well it was it was a, a pleasure and an honor to be asked and I I just want to say briefly how much we appreciate everyone who contributed um, on our research team who are all listed as authors on the papers and the people who who invited us into their spaces and and uh, shared their work and thoughts with us.
1: Yes I sang in that um. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us and in. it's been really great.